this is Tom Wallace, and welcome to another edition of Florida Funders Angel Investing Podcast. I'm really excited about our guest today, Adam Strzok, who I'm going to introduce you to here in a second. But real quickly, for those of you who are not familiar with Florida Funders, we're a hybrid between a venture capital fund and a curated angel network or crowd of angel investors. And we're focused on finding funding and building the next generation of great technology companies here in Florida. So today we have Adam Strzok. Adam is a Floridian, but he is in LA and he has Strzok Capital. You're going to hear a lot more about that. He's a a very successful young man. I've I've got him by several decades. I know that. (laughs) He was named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 most influential people, which is what an honor that is. Congratulations there, Adam. Thank you. And he's got some really interesting investors, including Leonardo DiCaprio, which I just saw that announcement. Congratulations there. And we're going to want to hear more about that. So Adam, welcome. And thanks for being on the show. Yeah, no, appreciate you having me and uh, looking forward to the discussion. You know, I was looking at your background and, and you're a lawyer. You know, that's not something you see a lot in venture capital. I wouldn't say you never see it, but you seem to have a lot of angel investors, venture capitalists go from being entrepreneurs and then into being on the investment side, which is what I did. There's a lot of different paths to get to being a venture capitalist, but you did it at such a young age and you seem to have taken a different path. Tell us about that. I was born in Johannesburg, South Africa, and uh, definitely came from a very entrepreneurial family. I think I always uh, I went to Northwestern University and did the Kellogg undergraduate certificate program. Um, so I was always very interested in, in business and, and the buy side uh, generally. For me, going to law school was sort of a way just to figure things out because during the time, it was the sort of 08 crisis and it really wasn't sexy to go into banking. And then when I got to Georgetown Law, they recruit so heavily, you know, these sort of big law firms. And I sort of just got captivated by Kirkland & Ellis, which is an incredible law firm, a great free market system. They really exposed me to many, many different deals. But I kind of knew really quickly that I was sort of on the wrong side of the proverbial fence. So, you know, I make the joke that I wanted to score the goals instead of making sure that the scoreboard was written up correctly. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, I literally left Kirkland Ellis um, on day two after I completed my first year. I got great reviews for my first year. And they were kind of shocked that I was leaving. And one of the partners went to me and just said, Listen, I totally respect what you're doing. If not now, then when? And if you don't like it and you want to come back to law, I'll guarantee your job for six months. So I felt really good about that. My mother was still crying when I left because I was like her lawyer son. You said you come from an entrepreneurial background. What did your parents do? Yeah. So the real entrepreneurial background um, is my grandfather's. So my grandfather on my father's side, his whole family was decimated before the Holocaust and during the Holocaust. And then he came to South Africa and was literally uh, selling snacks like at a concession stand by a, a manganese mine. And he ended up uh, saving enough money with a few of his friends and they bought land and ended up having mineral rights. Um, and he turned that into uh, a company called National Manganese Mines, uh, which was you know, when my father was called in his 30s, very, very well-known uh, company in South Africa. And on my mother's side, my grandfather, Harry, he um, was actually very big um, in steel with his brother, Max, in Zambia. My mother was born in Kitwe, Zambia, when it was a British Commonwealth. Oh, wow. Both your parents are from South Africa. Yeah, both both from South Africa and both sort of heavily in, in sort of natural resources. And, you know, it definitely was brought up at a young age to sort of channel your entrepreneurial spirit and, and want to take risks. So after you left the law firm, did you go right out and start your own firm? Yeah. So uh, my brother, um, who's a, my brother's seven years older than me. Um, he's on the lot in the CPG and food and beverage space. Uh, he was starting a company called Long Island Brand Beverages. 
he wanted me to come and join him. And I said I would, but in the boardroom or in the company, we're equals, even though you're my older brother uh, by <laughs> seven years, which is a long time. Our initial uh, thesis for that company, we were really inspired by Skinny Girl and, or sorry, by Bethany Frankel and what she did with Skinny Girl Margarita. Um, I actually worked on the deal at Kirkland and Ellis when uh, Jim Beam acquired the company. We thought that there wasn't a lot of really activity or innovation whatsoever in Long Island IC, yet it was an alcoholic beverage that everybody along the Eastern Corridor had a strong affinity towards and, and drank a lot. So we sort of wanted to have like a ready to, you know, RTD ready to drink cocktail that was, you know, sort of Long Island IC. We then, uh, as, as all, all things happen, right, you make plans and, and God laughs. It's very, very difficult to overcome the low margins and slotting fees associated uh, with any sort of company in the beverage space. And we all of a sudden got an opportunity to be in a bunch of vending machines along the Asian corridor. The caveat was the drink had to be non-alcoholic. So we said, wow, that, that's going to change it up a little bit. Yeah. Um, we did a bunch of field testing and we just noticed that there was a, a massive gap in the iced tea market. At the time, Arizona iced tea was the, the largest you know, player on the market. They had like 64 grams of high fructose corn syrup. So we thought that if we could come <laughs> to the table with cane sugar instead of high fructose corn syrup, reverse osmosis filtration to preserve the integrity of the tea leaf, organic, non-GMO, but still call ourselves Long Island IC and sort of benefit from the grassroots affinity and association along the Eastern Corridor with that brand, we thought maybe we'd be onto something. And uh, before we knew it, we were in 7,800 mom and pops. We were in Costco, ShopRite, 7-Eleven. We bootstrapped the company to 40 million in top line, and we sold it to a middle market private equity firm. Wow. Great. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So you had, a, you had a nice exit at an early age. I did. I did. And then my brother went right in to start another company called Hungry Root, which uh, has raised like a little over $50 million to date, backed by Lightspeed and Crosslink and Lehrer. He wanted me to join him. But I said, listen, bro, uh, you know, as much as I've enjoyed the ride, I'm uh, going to now go and do my own thing. Um, I, I was a lot more attracted to technology and SaaS and and 10x revenue multiples, of course. Um, so he sort of went and continued on the entrepreneurial route. He's had tremendous success. Then I went and started doing a bunch of special purpose vehicle investments to get a track record and then ended up launching Struck Capital. But it's a really cool situation because, for example, you know, in January, assuming the pandemic permits, he's going to come out here and, and I'm going to introduce him to a ton of VCs. He knows them all already, but it's, it's a really cool situation that sort of as brothers, we can help each other out in these sort of synergistic ways, me being on the capital side and him still being on the entrepreneurial side. Yeah, that's awesome. We, we share two things in common when I, I hear that story. One is I started my first company with my brother. Okay. And, and, he, and he's my older brother, too. So he's a lot smarter than me. Just ask him. He'll tell you. Oh, there it is. Yep. And, and then I, I was 23 when I started my first company. So when you were telling the story that the lawyer said, if not now, I always like to see young people take the risk and go out and start entrepreneurial ventures. And what better time? What do you have to lose? You don't have anything. Yeah. So if it goes bad, I, what the heck? I definitely agree. You know, I, I tell some, you know, I have some friends even to this day, they have these sort of golden handcuffs in big law. And, you know, you just say, it's like, well, when are you going to make the move? Like when you have three kids and the mortgage, you know, you, yeah. you got to try at some point. So uh, I'm glad I took the risk when I did. Yeah. Good for you. So you start Drug Capital. And what was your vision from the beginning? And Tell us more about the, the journey at Struck Capital. Yeah, you know, so I, I kind of stepped back and I said, wow, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky to have this exit and I've got this, you know, operational expertise now. I've got legal expertise, you know, what would be fulfilling for me? And I had a few buddies that were in tech working at, you know, sort of blue chip funds like NEA or Andreessen. And I kind of realized that, you know, listen, if I could, uh, you know, sort of initially position myself as a, as a real value add sort of angel investor, I could go to companies that I thought had strong KPIs and, they were raising subsequent rounds of financing, you know, led by tier one firms. And I could say, listen, 
you know, carve me out a 250K or 500K or a million dollar allocation in the round, I'll put up more sweat equity per dollar invested than any fund on your cap table and, and I'll work my butt off. And I, I wasn't opposed to sort of trying to make customer introductions, you know, help with talent acquisition, do all these things even before I had the opportunity to, to invest. Because my goal was to sort of, you know, generate a track record for myself, convince myself that I could actually do venture capital and, and add value to these portfolio companies. And then, of course, you know, get, get as many people as possible sort of comfortable with the Struck Capital brand and with me sort of being a fiduciary of their capital. How did you get to LA though? Because you did you did the Long Island Ice Tea in New York, yep. right? How, correct, correct, how did LA correct. Things happen. Yeah, yeah. So at this point in time, I'm still um, in New York. So did Long Island Ice Tea and then started doing SPVs. I got really lucky. Uh, the second SPV I ever invested in was in Postmates, and that wow. was back in uh, in 2014. How early were you in Postmates? Was it early on? Yeah, it was between the A and the B. So they actually completed their acquisition uh, two days ago. So that, that, that's a nice win uh, for the investors. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so I did, uh, I did like 18 SPVs. I got to a point where I realized that there were tech entrepreneurs and various family offices that they were really taking a portfolio approach to my deals. I'd send them five and they would, they would do four of them. You know? So I realized, hey, I really have some proprietary access here. And then I decided, okay, you know, now I would really love to leverage this track record and launch a fund. And my goal was to raise $25 million. I ended up closing $32 million. And during that fundraise, I was actually brought to LA. And uh, I just felt like, wow, this is such an incredible ecosystem right now. And my, my wife and I were really tired of freezing winters uh, between uh, <laughs> Chicago and New York and Georgetown. We decided, you know, hey, let, let's just do it. Her sister um, went to UCLA Law and was working at O'Melveny and Myers here in LA. I have an aunt here in LA. And we got an Airbnb in the Hollywood Hills and uh, never looked back. You know, I, I now have my daughter here and we, we live here. I'm going to be here for the rest of my life. Yeah, that's great. For our listeners who don't know what an SPV is, I just want to clarify that. That's a special purpose vehicle, which basically means that, Adam, you're putting together an LLC and going out and finding investors to invest in, in these, these individual deals like Postmates. Sorry, I missed that on that one, by the way. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, listen, you know, you see DoorDash, when I invested in Postmates, they were definitely leading DoorDash, like, you know, materially leading that. But now, uh, you know, DoorDash is IPO and gets some like $30 billion valuation. So, you know, it, it, all, it all depends. You never know how it's going to work out. <laughs> yeah. And we do that with our investments here in Florida funders. Our fund puts in usually half what we're going to put in, and then we form an SPB, go out to our angel network and they fill out the round. So that's SPVs are something we use every, really every day here. Just about. Definitely. And it's uh, the nice thing with SPVs, you know, you don't get management fees, but you're, uh, you're in the carry for every deal that you do because they're sort of separate. So uh, some advantages for sure. Yeah. So you're in LA, you know, when I was reading about Struck Capital getting ready for this, the mission struck me as very similar to what we're trying to do with Florida funders and trying to change Florida into being a state. We like to say a state known for technology and innovation instead of one known for the mouse and strawberries and tourism. And it sounds like you're on a very similar mission in transforming LA into being known for technology. Tell us about that. Yeah, 100%. You know, I think since I've been in LA, it's just incredible how much has changed. But I, I think that, that that sort of force multiplier is happening again and again and again. And I think if we look at LA today, and then we fast forward five years, it's going to be a, a similar level of change. You know, I, I just think sort of what, what, what I realized uh, very quickly was there really is a strong hotbed of, uh, of engineering talent here. There's more engineers in Southern California than anywhere else um, in the United States. So 
I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So it's a very interesting data point. And, and when you have sort of the engineering talent, you should be in a position that you can have, you know, sort of homegrown companies that can go all the way. I think Snapchat, though, is sort of the first example where people saw that, wow, you can really build something in LA. You know, you can IPO, you can, you can have that multi-billion dollar market cap and, and, and really uh, and establish yourself as a category leader. And when I came out to LA, even though there are you know a bunch of strong funds here, I still felt that it was a real greenfield. And we've gotten to a point in basically five years that we're the fourth largest dedicated seed fund in LA. And I think we've been able to capture a lot of market share in a short period of time because the mindset that we take towards venture capital is a little bit different than some of the legacy VCs here. I say that you sort of have to really look and feel like the seed stage companies that you're backing. So we, we try and move fast. We try and break things. We don't like any bureaucracy. We have no problem adding a ton of value to portfolio, you know, to com- prospective portfolio companies before they agree to term sheets or before there's an opportunity to invest. And I think just generally, too, sort of being young, we've been able to outflank some other VCs because these young founders want to work with us. So, you know, it's, it's pretty incredible to me that LA is, is, is such a, a huge market and yet it, it still feels young. And I'm sure you get a very similar feeling in Florida as well. And that's lovely, right? Because that just means that if you, can, if you can practice the art of venture capital the right way, you can grab a lot of the market. Well, the other thing in Florida we see, and, and I'm curious as to if this is the case in LA, is the valuations are a lot different than what we see in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. So we think we're able to invest in companies who are good companies, have good products, and valuations substantially lower than if they were in the Valley or San Francisco. You're really close to San Francisco and, and the Valley, obviously. So how, how do you look at that? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. You know, I think what happens in Silicon Valley is you, you just have a lot of these billion dollar behemoth funds that from their perspective, if they get into a company at $10 million post or a $20 million post, it doesn't really make the difference to them if they're truly underwriting that it's a category leader. There, there's no question about it. You know, sort of LA deals are at, at much lower valuations and it's, it's an advantage for the fund as a whole. You know, I think generally our main goal is to, is to you know, invest in LA and, and ensure that we can help sort of buttress the totality of this ecosystem. But we're also noticing that places like Austin, places like Denver, places like Florida, there's very good opportunities to invest. So we, we don't shy away from investing there as well. But what we do shy away from are sort of these deals that we know right away. These are just like very high-flying Silicon Valley deals you know, that, that are going to get done at these ridiculous valuations. We, we don't actually waste our time. You know, we, we want to know what they're doing and, and we want to understand them for market mapping purposes. But we don't waste our time sort of writing them term sheets because because you're 100% right. You know, the, these billion-dollar funds, they'll come in and they'll just take it. And, and they're not really that valuation sensitive, uh, <laughs> which is pretty interesting. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, because I understand that kind of one of your secret sauces, and I'm, I've heard this, is the value you add. And you, you alluded to it earlier, that you start adding that value even before you invest in these companies. What is the main way you're able to help founders grow their business? And how do you look at that? And how do you help these? And we do the same thing here. I mean, it's a big part. We don't just write checks. And I know, I know it's a big part of your, your success formula. Tell our listeners more about that. I think they'd love to hear that. Yeah, you know, it's this interesting thing, you know, and I'm not trying to, to say anything bad about venture capital as a whole, but, but I just find generally that a lot of VCs, they write checks and then they kind of disappear. Their definition of, of adding value is calling a founder once a month or once a quarter asking for KPIs and they, they promise to make an intro. And then the minute the phone call ends, they get another email and they forget about it. We really try and productize and systematize the way that we add value. And we've actually infused even core technology innovation into our own fund to make it easier and more scalable in terms of the way that we help our companies. Even though we're an industry agnostic fund, I'm a firm believer that 
building a company, whether it's a fintech company or a SaaS company, there's very similar patterns and these founders are all going through similar issues. So if we can sort of be proactive instead of reactive and create tools that we know are going to extend across the portfolio and add value, then that's something that's worth our time. And, and we go really, really deep on that. So for example, we have a lot of companies that find product market fit, but what separates a good company from a great company is not only finding product market fit, but then getting to a point that you can get you know, those sort of 10Xers at, at legacy companies that are similar to yours to sort of abandon ship and join your mission. So talent acquisition, in our opinion, is what makes or breaks a lot of our portfolio companies at the earliest of stages. So what we've done is we've actually, we've actually developed a script in-house that can take job descriptions, pattern match them to LinkedIn profiles, use a bit of machine learning to then find additional LinkedIn profiles that, that match those LinkedIn profiles, and then automate outreach on behalf of our founders. And if we, uh, if we do it the right way, we just kill when it comes to top of the funnel, you know, all of a sudden they're like, Hey, I'm, I'm trying to find this, you know, senior backend engineer. And we've got eight individuals that, you know, match the statistics you're looking for that have already opted in to introductions. And then we make the connection. So that's just like a great example of how can we be proactive as it relates to talent acquisition versus what maybe a lot of other VCs do, which is like, Oh, you're looking for this person, like hire a recruiter, or, or you need to go scrape LinkedIn or, Oh, I'll, I'll see if there's someone in my network and then nothing happens. You know, we, yeah. we have a head of platform at, at Struck Capital. And the reason for that is we really want to productize the way that we add value. And it, it's so much of this is about talent, right? Building the right team. 100%. I want to go back to Postmates for a, a, a second because I was thinking about that further while you were talking. How did you find that deal and how did that come about? Are you still in it to this day? So Postmates was acquired by Uber in an all-stock uh, transaction. We are all waiting right now for them to officially give us uh, the Uber stock. <laughs> so okay. we'll see what, what we're going to do after that. But yeah, it's really just about being very well-networked. So uh, you know, given that I sort of sold a company in the F&B space, I have a few people in my network that know Bastion, uh, who is the CEO and co-founder of Postmates. And I was just really able to like hound him unrelentlessly, you know, relentlessly uh, and get an allocation. And it, it's really that simple. I find that if you're gonna, if you can really humble yourself um, and put in the effort, even though maybe you're gonna get nothing out of it, and you can actually show that there's some material way to add value and, and move the ball forward, a lot of founders are gonna be really open to it, you know. And I, I think it, it really also usually has to happen like at the earlier stages because once they, you know, they hit Series C or Series D status and, and they're a category leader, it's a lot more difficult. Postmates at the time when when I invested, they were still struggling a little bit. I mean, they had strong KPIs, but it wasn't like this this beautiful uh, symphony that it is today. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't mind me asking, well, how many times return will that be for you guys? Yeah, so it's a it's a really nice one. Uh, it's over fifteen x. But from a valuation perspective, it's not from a multiple perspective, it's not as large as you would think from a valuation perspective. And the reason for that is. And I, I blame Bill Gurley for this, honestly, as he, uh, he, was, he was really anti uh, the gig economy. And when Postmates was trying to sort of raise its series, I think, D or E, um, it was very difficult for them to do. And Founders Fund really bailed them out and got 100% warrant coverage as a byproduct of that investment. So for everybody on the cap table, except Founders Fund, <laughs> uh, but, you know, your, your multiples are not going to correlate uh, to the valuation, to the entry point valuation and exit point valuation. But still, uh, still a great win. Yeah, and 15x. Take every one of those we can get, right? Exactly. And what we were underwriting really was sort of being an operating system for the gig economy. And we do believe that played out. So that's always, always nice. Good. Well, great. Congratulations again. On the investment side, have there been any investments that you passed on that you look back on and they really took off? Yeah. Yeah. You know, listen, there's a lot of deals that we pass on and then we do a postmortem and it can be frustrating. But at the same point in time, 
I've heard a lot of stories about VCs that have looked at sort of that initial instantiation of Uber and they passed. And I actually don't think they passed for the wrong reasons. I think the one that specifically comes to mind uh, is Limebike, just because I know Toby, we had a chance to invest and like, we said no. And like two days later, Andreessen then invested. And then like six months later, they were worth like a billion dollars. Um, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what happens, uh, you know, to a lot of those companies in the space, given COVID, etc. But there's such a healthy secondary market for Lime that we would have made a lot of money and, and would have been able to take a lot of capital off the table. But yeah, listen, we, we get it wrong a lot. You know, the key is really sort of having conviction and why you make the decisions that you make. And you know, another thing that we've kind of realized as well is as our gravitas increases in the ecosystem, we're seeing deals earlier, but sometimes it's actually a negative, especially at the seed stage, because you see a deal and then you find out three months later that a fund that's sought later than you is doing the deal and the company has hit some incredible KPI and they've got product market fit and now they're very investable. So we really try and just like track the companies that we pass on because we want to make sure that that doesn't occur. Well, if it makes you feel any better on Uber, when I first heard the idea behind Uber, I thought it was the stupidest thing I ever heard of. I'm like, wait, some stranger is going to come to my house and pick me up in their car. I'm going to get in a stranger's car and they're going to take me to the airport or they're going to take me to a restaurant. I, I just didn't get it. But. Yeah. And I heard that like when, when Travis and everybody went out and pitched Uber, like they're all working on different companies and like they're like deck wasn't great. Like it's very interesting, right? Because today if a, if a founder came to me and they're like, I'm pitching this idea, but I'm working on another company, I'd be like, well, <laughs> we can't do business, you know? So it's just, you know, very interesting how things uh, pan out. Yeah. You never know. Now, when you say seed, seed means different things to different people. What stage are you typically investing? Are, these, are you investing pre-revenue? So there's a really sophisticated institutionally backed pre-seed environment here um, in LA, and they are the ones that are really investing sort of pre-revenue and with micro traction. I would say our seed stage bets are similar to where maybe Series A was like, you know, five to seven years ago. These companies have, call it, I would say like at least 30K in MRR. We will do pre-seed bets as well, but, but those are then sort of smaller checks with very special founders that we usually have pre-existing relationships with. The majority of the time, you know, we, we want to see material unit economics and we want to see strong signs of, of product market fit. And what is your typical check size when you're investing? Yeah, yeah. So we're doing a million to a million and a half. And our typical, I would say to everyone, like seven pre, 10 post. So if you're doing a, a $3 million round, we can come in and take a million and a half and take 15%. You know, or we don't mind being flexible and taking 10%, and, you know, even 8%, it depends, you know, and co-leading, there's, there's a lot of optionality there. Um, but yeah, typically 1 million to a million and a half. And what percentage of the comp- your, your original investments do you end up doing follow-on investments in? Yeah, so, you know, the fund is structured in such a way that we save 50% for follow-on. The way Fund 2 is performing right now is I may even save 60% for follow-on because we're doing very well. So, so technically, I tell founders that, listen, if you hit your KPIs, you know, and and a, a tier one, you know, blue chip Silicon Valley fund is leading that subsequent round of financing. We're going to support you and we're going to participate. And we're actually structurally set up to do so up to the close of the series B. After that, it gets too concentrated. And we also love to offer those co-investment opportunities to our LPs. But yeah, I mean, we, we are set up to follow on and we want to do that. Okay. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. You brought up LPs. So tell us, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, how did that come about? The story's not as cool as uh, everyone I would like it to be. But I would say <laughs> what I would say with Leo is, 
He's got a really, really sophisticated investment team behind him. Uh, they got to know us over like an 18-month period. So in that sense, it was a slow burn. But I think, you know, without, without putting words directly in Leo's mouth, I think, you know, he really shares a passion for the LA community and LA is his home. And, yeah. you know, LA is my home and we share the exact same passion for the tech community and LA as a whole. It's a huge feather in our cap. Leo obviously has this incredible platform that's related to green tech and, and green energy. But he's never actually publicly associated himself with just like a tech fund that's industry agnostic, let alone an LA fund. I find generally that a lot of um, VC funds look the same. We all talk about you know disruption and innovation, and yet our models and the way our capital is very commoditized. So to get the opportunity to partner with Leo and his platform for our founders to know that if they take capital from Struck, if so facto they're taking capital from him, and if they do things the right way, maybe they can leverage his platform in the future. I think it's a huge differentiator for us, and, and we feel really privileged uh, to be associated with him. But yeah, just generally, uh, he is uh, he is a very sophisticated team, and you know we got through a, a very lengthy diligence process. Well, congratulations! You'd start talking about technology and innovation. Some of that's regional, right? It's different in different parts of the country, and we we see that here in Florida. You mentioned LA has more engineers than any any other place in the country. I didn't even know that. That's yep, a very interesting statistic. What do you see as the, the innovation and or the opportunities in your area that you tend to focus on or, or look at? Yeah, you know, I, I confuse people a lot because my background as an entrepreneur is in CPG, F&B. And yet when I invest as a venture capitalist, we're doing the majority of the time we're doing horizontal vertical SaaS. We love like API infrastructure plumbing plays. We're doing a lot of fintech. I truly see LA as a sort of industry agnostic tech Hub. I think there's enough engineering talent here, especially now with what's happening with COVID, where there's this max mass exodus from San Francisco. A lot of them are coming to LA and Austin. There's an, enough empirical data to support that you can literally build any company that you want here in Los Angeles. So, you know, we're finding incredible SaaS companies. Uh, we're seeing incredible marketplace companies. We're seeing incredible healthcare, mental health companies. It's obviously social media and then, and, and, you know, green companies like Honest Company. There's, there's a lot um, here. So we, we really don't limit ourselves. You know, I think LA used to be known as like, oh, the, the only thing you can build here is sort of media companies and it has to be Hollywood related. And I really think that couldn't be further from the truth. I think you can build anything here. Oh, I, I love that. And we believe the same thing about Florida. We, we see really all kinds of companies, cybersecurity, fintech, digital health. And we see Florida very much the way you were saying is technology agnostic. We did our first LA deal. It's a gaming company. We have a decent gaming or pretty decent gaming pocket in Orlando. Electronic Arts has a big office there with a thousand employees and the University of Central Florida has a master's in gaming, which is one of the top rated gaming programs and mine are saying the country, but not the world. We have a bunch of cybersecurity here in Tampa, but you know, to your point, we, we, we really look at it, you know, it's pretty wide open and, and we see that as a plus. Anything else you want to share with our listeners and, and uh, any other uh, anecdotes or uh, advice you would give investors and, you know, when they're looking at investments? I would say generally, I, I think there's a lot of fear out there with sort of the, the pandemic and you know, the longest bull market in, in history and a lot of quantitative easing and, and, and all of these things. What I would say to people that are looking at venture capital and, and, and just deciding on if they want to have some semblance of this asset class as a, uh, you know, as a part of their diversified portfolio, what I tell people is we're investing in, in, in innovation. And I think uh, there's an incredible opportunity right now to sort of back first principle thinkers at opportunistic terms who see the world differently and, and, are oper- and, and sort of see that there's a, 
an incredible, it's an incredible time right now to, to sort of take core technology innovation and use it to adapt to sort of new ways of living. So in that sense, um, we're more excited than ever. I encourage everybody uh, that's listening to this when the, when the pandemic allows, make your way over to LA, uh, check out the scene, check out what we're doing over here. And always happy to have uh, you know, a, a strong entrepreneur stop by the office and uh, we can talk shop. Well, next time in LA, I'm going to take you up and, and please do. Be lovely. Yes, I miss traveling out there. You know, the vaccine's supposedly coming on any day, so hopefully the, we're in the back end of this whole pandemic and we'll be back to uh, the new normal, whatever that looks like. But we agree with you here at Florida Funders, and you look at the the technology and innovation that's coming on in the next five to ten years: artificial intelligence, blockchain, augmented virtual reality, autonomous vehicles, quantum computing. The wealth opportunity, the wealth creation opportunity, both for investors and entrepreneurs, we think is absolutely unprecedented. And the next Googles and the next Apples are, you know, being they're in somebody's garage in LA or somebody's garage in Tampa or Miami. And it's just an exciting time, both as an investor and again, as an entrepreneur. So Adam, thank you so much. This has been awesome. You have a great story and you're so, so young. I wish you all the, all the best. I'm sure you're going to continue to be very successful. And uh, hopefully we'll do some more investing together. We're in Flex Engage and Orlando Company together. And hopefully we'll do some more deals. Together. Yeah, we would love it. Um, really appreciate the opportunity and uh, looking forward to meeting in person one of these days. Great. Likewise. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. If you want to learn more about Florida Funders, just go out to our website, floridafunders.com. Whether you're an investor or a founder, if you're a founder, we have a very easy application process to get into our deal flow process. Take you about 10 minutes to apply. And thanks again for joining us. Have a great day.